James chapter 4. We are in the fourth chapter after two months for a book that takes five minutes to read. We still have another month left, so we're flying. Um, And you're going to see why it's going to slow down even a little bit more as I read our text this morning. James chapter 4, let's start reading in verse 11. It says this. Don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. (coughs) Excuse me. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. (coughs) If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and a judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is what I get from making a joke about taking a drink out of the baby bottle. I should have filled it with water. Who are you to judge your neighbor? Anybody ever heard that before? Isn't that kind of the the mantra of 2023? It's probably (coughs) the most well-known verse in Scripture today. You know what I'm talking about, right? Judge not that ye be not judged. They even know it in the King James. That's pretty impressive. (laughs) So what is this not saying? Okay, it's really important you understand what this is not saying. It's not saying that we should just buy into the mantra of modern culture that says, actually, folks, there really is no truth, just what we perceive to be our own personal truth. So when we say, no, I'm sorry, that's wrong, well, then actually by just saying that, we ourselves are in fact wrong. That's, that's, that's the way it works today. That's the general knock on Christians today is that we're always making moral evaluations about things. And so their argument is never, never make a moral evaluation about anything. Never make a moral evaluation about somebody else, particularly about their religion and what they believe and how they think they should live. Take the higher road of tolerance, they say. The problem is that statement is both contradictory and hypocritical. When you say, I'm wrong to evaluate someone else's belief system, you are then evaluating my belief system. Small problem there. And, and by doing that, you're not being very tolerant. I'm just being obnoxious. I'm going to move on now. But that's not what this passage is talking about. It's not telling us not to confront people. It's not telling us to avoid people in our church who are living in open rebellion against God because sometimes face-to-face rebuke is in fact necessary and it is taught in scripture we are to do that because a Christian lives in community and when a Christian decides to to live in sin because they are living in community we are counting on that community we live in to come and talk to us because quite honestly many times our hearts are so desperately wicked we don't even realize that we're living in sin and so we count on people to come so so that conversation though must be done the right spirit, and the right motivation. That's what this passage is talking about. What James is saying here when he says, don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters, anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames or judges the law. What he is saying there is, don't tear each other down with your, this is a very technical term, judgy spirit. Judgy spirit, um, and, I, and I, I, don't, don't attack people for being dumb. All right? 
I'm, I'm making this like, right, we're putting the cookies on the bottom shelf today, okay? Don't attack people for being dumb. But Frank, you don't understand. I'm surrounded by dumb people. I know. God never says that's not true. That may in fact be true, but God doesn't say there are no dumb people. He says you're supposed to love dumb people. Some of you are really struggling with this. So let me help. Let me help. You ready? You would do me a favor and raise your hand if you have never met a dumb person. Raise your hand. I'm just up here spitting truth. That's all. So, okay, you're with me now. He says they can be dumb. That's fine. Don't, which is kind of ironic what I'm about to say, don't slander them. <laughs> don't pass judgment on them. This isn't, and this isn't about telling lies or spreading false rumors about them. By all means, don't tell lies. Don't spread false rumors. But that's not what James is saying here. It's really interesting. He's saying don't slander somebody. Don't belittle them. Don't squash them. Don't talk down to them. Don't treat them like they're small. And then he also says don't judge them. Don't condemn them. Here's a crazy thing. Are you ready? You can talk down to somebody. You can condemn somebody while you're telling the truth. This is where the theology of mom got it right. You don't have something nice to say. Yeah. So what's the purpose of what you're about to say? How do you intend to use this truth that's about to come from your mouth? What James says right here is you're to use the truth as a brother or a sister. Don't use the truth like you're the judge. You do see the, the distinct difference between those two, right? When a judge stands before an accused and he says, here is the truth. The truth is you are guilty of this crime and therefore you are sentenced to this. There is a level of condemnation there. A brother or sister uses truth like this. Dude, dad's coming home. Quick, we gotta put it away. Right? The idea is I'm not trying to squash you. I'm not trying to condemn you. I'm using truth to build you up. Criticizing, defaming, as James used those words, is used to push people aside instead of pull them in. It, you're seeking to cause other people to lose respect in the eyes of others. You're draining the influence from them. You're tearing them down. You're pushing them away instead of trying to redeem them or rescue them or help them. So what James is saying, when you tear down, when you slander, when you belittle when you condemn other people, you also tear down, you slander, you belittle, you condemn the law. And when you do that, you know, let me, I don't want to assume that you know what that is. Let me hit this again. So we talked about it back in chapter 2, which referred back to Mark chapter 12, when the, the young man approached Jesus and said, Jesus, listen, this is a big book. Just, just give me a synopsis. What's the most important thing I need to know? And Jesus said, okay, that's pretty easy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor like yourself. When you refuse to do those things, when you flat out refuse to love others well, what you are doing is tearing down the law. Your job is to do the law. To do the law of loving other people best. Not decide if they deserve it or not. Because when you do that, you are acting like you are superior as you swing your morality bat at the people, right? You're superior to the person who you are judging. When you're superior to the person, instead of loving them and you're judging them, what you've then done is said, well, actually, I'm superior to God's command in the law to love my neighbor. Whoa, so now you're superior to God's law. 
which in effect what that does is makes you equal to or superior to God himself. When James says that, uh, that won't fly. We, we create our own law in our head, don't we? We, we create a score sheet. <laughs> um, it really depends on and how good they are at obeying the very simple rules, like allowing me to merge when I want to merge. Um, keeping your child quiet when I determine the child needs to be quiet. Putting your trash in the correct receptacle. I mean, we all have our scorecards. And when, when, when they don't match what they should, we think they should match, we, um, we blow them up. We blow them up. That's not how this is supposed to go. I mean, even when they're in the wrong, our goal isn't to smash them. I want to show you Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 says this. My brothers and my sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, then you who are spiritual restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so you also won't be tempted. I don't know where we got this idea that when somebody's in the wrong, it's our responsibility to show up with our morality bat and swing away. Paul's very clear in Galatians, man, if, if they're in the wrong, by all means, have that conversation, but your goal needs to be to rescue them, to restore them, to, to redeem them. Even, even the passage that we're most familiar with when it comes to um, individual confrontation in Matthew chapter 18 Jesus lays out the process for us very clearly. He says, if, 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 he, if a brother has sinned against you, then, then I want to encourage you to go to that brother one-on-one. -on -one. I want you to go and talk about it. Not to end the relationship, but to see if the relationship can't be restored. Hey, if he doesn't receive you, then, then there's a next step. What I want you to do is I want you to take another person with you. And you're going to go into their presence, not to embarrass them, but, but to help them see that you are willing to have the conversation with another person in the room. Why? Because you want to see that person restored. Then if they won't hear you, then you tell the church. Oh, so you can shame them? No. So that every person with an opportunity of relationship can speak into their lives and beg them to return so that they might be led to reconciliation. And even with that whole process of Matthew 18, one-on-one, -on -one, two-on-one, the, the church as a whole, in that context is the, the understanding of forgiveness. Forgiveness is still necessary and, and, and taught in that very same, same context. But, but, but here's the difficulty. That's, that's God's law. We are going after that person to reconcile, to bring reconciliation. Our law will never do that. Our law will always hurt. Our law will always not bring benefit. It will be condemnation-based instead of hope-driven. And our law flows out of the fact that we are often judgy people. How can you determine if you are a judgy person? I want to give you a couple of, just a couple of identifying factors. And, and hey, listen, um, I, I, I will say this very, um, <laughs> I don't know, I don't know how to, what word to use, what, what, what uh, adjective, um, be as honest as I can. This list was not original with me. This list beat the tar out of me this week. So when I'm throwing this in front of you, how can you tell if you have a judgy spirit? I can tell you this. I have been convicted this week that I have a judgy spirit. 
First thing is this, your track record of offering criticism to people has left a trail of wounded individuals. Now, listen, let me be clear. There are some people that if you tell them their shoes don't match, they're going to be offended for the next 10 years. Seriously, there are some people who, who are always wounded if you give them honest evaluations. But what this is saying is, if you have a pattern in your life of wrecked relationships and ruined people because of your feedback, then you should check if you're a judgy person. Another identifying factor is this. You have a habit of finding immediate fault with people. You know what kind of person that is even before you know that person. I can tell by the car they drive, the clothes they wear, the, the hairstyle that they have, the, 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 the glasses they wear, the, the family that they have, the people they hang out with. I can tell and I can pinpoint the ways that they've messed up even though I've actually never even had a conversation with them. You can tell you have a judgy spirit if you find most people irritating to you most of the time. That one's not me. For most of you. No, I'm just kidding. Um, this is not being an introvert. This is born out of a spirit of arrogance. This person is the one that if you were to ask them, what expression is this person known for? The answer would be the eye roll. That's an evidence you're a judgy person. Another evidence you could be a judgy person is this. When you need to have those hard conversations, you don't allow for that conversation to continue because you have already made up your mind. The decree, the decision, the judgment is final. You can tell you might be a judgy person if you assign motives to people going well beyond any known facts. Well, I know why they say that. They tend to hang out with those people. And they say that because they hang out with those people. And those people think this. And you've got to create this incredible Sherlock Holmes moment just to try to figure it out. And meanwhile, the poor guy's like, I didn't mean that at all. I misunderstood the question. But, but see, we know. Because we know. James here is saying, stop trying to take God's place. Look at how he finishes it here in verse 12. There's one lawgiver, one judge who's able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge your neighbor? Let me, let me rephrase verse 12. You ready? Follow along with me. There is one lawgiver and one judge who's able to save and to destroy, and you ain't him. To the one who can judge, the one who can destroy the one who can save is the same one who created. I mean, he, he made this. He knows what it's supposed to do. He knows how it's supposed to turn out. He's the one that gets to determine if this is no good or beyond repair, not us. He knows if it's fulfilling its intended purposes. He's the one that spent the time on it. He gets to decide when the story's over. But see, as a judgy person, we can stand over here and be like, well, but that person deserves... You have no idea what that person deserves. And here's a second thing. Thank God he doesn't deal with people as they deserve. Because you and I would be in a lot of trouble. God himself is the judge. 
like I said, in our law, we set levels, we set standards, we create checklists, we had the, the do's and, and the don'ts that we apply. Usually, usually we apply to everybody else, not necessarily ourselves, but we apply those out. And if those people perform well, they meet our expectations, if they meet our, our demands, then they're, they're good in our book, but have mercy on their souls if they do not. Man. See, our homemade law is completely deficient. It's a stick we use to beat the hurting. It's a bat we use to, to swing at the people who need mercy. What, what it tells them is this. It says, listen, you're hurting. Okay? You need mercy, and this is what you need to do. Okay? Here's my checklist. Do this. Don't do that. Change this. Fix this. And as soon as the person starts trying to fulfill your list, what they find is that your list is exhausting and impotent to bring any change or mercy or strength or rest that they actually need. But God's law, God's law as he has established it is perfect. It's not critical for critical sake. It's not tearing down. It's, it's for the purpose of bringing reconciliation. His law is perfect. It refreshes the soul, the psalmist says. How? How does God's law refresh the soul? Because it's not a bat to use to bloody us. It's a, it's a diagnostic tool to reveal to us our deep-seated heart problem. Let me, let me give you a picture, okay? It, it's, it's the MRI machine. It's the MRI machine. When you go in and, and you, you have to lay there and listen to all the I don't know if you've ever been in one. They're very relaxing. <laughs> and you're listening to all these crazy noises. And what the MRI is designed to do is to show you if there is a problem or not. If there is a problem, it's because, oh, okay, there it is, okay, the, it, it, uh, our, your body, it's, it's malfunctioning. Okay, so the MRI, as accurate as that might be, is in diagnosing my problem. Here it is, there's a problem, it's right here, we got to look at that, we see a growth. No matter how accurate it is at diagnosing that growth, it's incapable of being my cure. No matter how many MRIs you have, it will never remove this mass, it can't cure anything. You would be a fool to run to the MRI looking for healing. That would be stupid. Because every day I went back, I would get into the machine again, endure the clanking and the noise making, and I would get the exact same news. Or worse news. Because what the MRI is designed to do is to bless us with the stark, heavy news when we are sick or we are in need, and what it's supposed to do is point you to the fact that you need someone to fix it for you. God's holy and perfect law does the exact same thing. It reveals inside of us this horrific condition called, called sin. But if I keep running back to the law, so if I do this, do that, do this, do that, that, that law can never actually save me. It will never save me. It can't save me. That's not what it's there for. What it does is it tells me I need somebody to fix me. And it points me right to Jesus. He's the only one who can save. God says, I'm, I'm the one who's going to, to both judge and to save. Now the judge won't overlook guilt or stop judging. So what God did was gave us his son, Jesus Christ, who saved us through his own judgment. Here's, here's the thought that we should walk out of here with today. Jesus has the right to judge us. 
And yet he came not to condemn, but to save. So who are you to think you can pass judgment on any other person? No matter how unrighteous they might be. No matter how guilty they might be. So Jesus is teaching regularly in the temple. Uh, we're told in John 7, John 8, that he's, he's, he's going to the temple area teaching, and in the evening he's heading to the Mount of Olives, the east side of the Mount of Olives, and he's staying in Bethany for the night, and then he returns back to the temple to, to teach yet again. So he would come into the, the temple complex, and uh, he would sit on the floor. Now, the, the floor, most recently in, in some archaeological discoveries, what they found is the floor would have, was made of some type of dark granite, a little bit of marble even. So Jesus would come, and he would just sit on the floor, and the people, the people would just come out of everywhere to hear this great teacher. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know if you've ever had that experience when somebody famous or really good at their craft um, I, I love golf, so I go to a lot of golf tournaments, and, and, and when the, the best golfers step up to it, my favorite golfer is Tony Finau. Tony Finau will step up to the, to the tee box, and he'll get ready to hit, and it is, it's amazing to watch just how, how effortlessly he swings and how far the ball goes. I mean, I didn't realize it was supposed to go straight. I thought it was supposed to be this really cool curve thing. No, it's supposed to go straight. Lessons learned. But following Tony Finau is one thing, but if Tiger Woods is on the course, you know when he's coming. Because you can look all the way up the fairway, and suddenly you just see this horde of people walking alongside the fairway so they can get close to, to, to Tiger Woods. That's similar to what's happening here with Jesus. He would come to the temple, and the, it was like a magnet. People would just come from, from everywhere to try to get close to him. And so as he sat on the floor of the temple complex, many people would sit on the floor next to him. Some would sit on the stairs in front of him. Some would sit in windowsills. Some would just stand along the edges. Anything they could possibly do to get close to him, just to listen to him teach. And he's, I mean, he's teaching. He's teaching about how he's sent by God, that the words that he is speaking are the words that his father has given him. He's teaching them about the, the living water. He's explaining them to them a little bit of, of, of what his purpose is, why he is, is there. And, and people are sitting there, and their minds are just blown away. They're like, how could a carpenter be so smart? No offense, carpenters. It, it, this is how crazy it gets. The chief priests of the Pharisees are listening to him teach, and they're like, we, we need to arrest this dude. We need to so, so they get the temple officers. Think, think mall security. And they say, we want you to go arrest Jesus. And they head off to, to the temple to, to get Jesus. They get to the outside of the people, and it says Jesus is in the middle of teaching. And as the, the, the mall security gets there to take care of him, they listen, and they are just absolutely, Whoa. They return to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and the chief priests and the Pharisees are like, ah, you forget something? You were supposed to arrest him. And their response was, listen, no, no one, no one has ever spoken like this. 
as Jesus sits on the dusty floor, the people gather around him. He starts another session of teaching. And another one of those Tiger Woods commotions begins way off to the side. And in comes this horde of people, mostly men, into the scene, the scribes, the Pharisees, some young, some old. And here they come towards Jesus. And they take this, this young woman and they throw her between Jesus and the crowd. And so now, standing in front of Jesus, who's sitting on the floor, and, and the crowd who is sitting on the stairs is this, this woman who is, who is nearly fully nude. Her hair hanging over her face. She refuses to make eye contact with anybody. And, and, and there's this whispering happening on the stairs of people, and Jesus is really paying them no mind. Until one of the Pharisees says, This woman... This woman right here was caught in adultery. And so what the law says is women like this should be stoned to death. Jesus, what do you say? Now, there's a lot of questions. Um, there should be two people. Women like this? And this, this woman is standing before people deeply humiliated, absolutely terrified. We can assume very safely that the charges the scribes and Pharisees were making against this woman were, were actually accurate. Here's why. There were some prescribed ways prescribed evidences that needed to be produced in order to make such a claim. And so, very likely, they had caught her in the actual act, and there were a number of witnesses, which actually leads us to believe that perhaps the scribes and Pharisees had set this woman up to be caught. Because what we find next is, as they bring her before Jesus and, and throw her before Jesus, they're asking Jesus the question, the law says she should be stoned. What do you say? That's a trap. Because if Jesus says, no, 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 we, 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 shouldn't, we shouldn't stone her, we shouldn't stone her, well, well then he is clearly in contradiction to, to the law of Moses. But if Jesus says, stone her to death, well, then he's in, he's in, in trouble with the Romans. So it seems as if Jesus is stuck in a bit of a pinch. So there she stands, making eye contact with nobody, a pile of absolute shame, embarrassment, and she's humiliated because she is, in fact, guilty. Seems in the stories you read it that Jesus may not be making eye contact with anybody. He's still sitting on the floor. And as they continue to question what he thinks, it says they persist in their questioning of him. It, he's, he's, he's still sitting on the, 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 the floor, the, the, the dark granite floor that's covered in dust. And, and, and as they're talking, it's almost as if he refuses to look at them. He just leans over and with a finger, he just begins to write 
in the dust. And think about it like a car window that's too dirty, you know, wash me. That's kind of what Jesus is doing here, okay? And they just keep throwing and hurling the questions at him, the accusations against this woman, and he just continues and just continues until he's done because Jesus is not in a rush. Finishes and he stands at his feet. Probably for the first time, turns and makes eye contact with those scribes and Pharisees. He says, Okay. The one who is without sin should be the first one to throw a stone at her. With that, he turned, stooped down and returned to writing in the dust. And you can imagine the silence that fell on the crowd. I wish somebody would have recorded what he was writing. There's all kinds of theories, all kinds of ideas. Is he writing uh, the law? Is he writing the, the law about adultery and including the man? Is he what is he writing? And there's theories out there, and my goodness, I want to be very careful. I don't want to stand before you and say for certain what I cannot say for certain. So I'm going to stand to the side over here <laughs> and give you my opinion, which, it, who knows? Jesus wrote twice. The men were very aware of what he was writing because of their response, which will come in a moment. I believe pure opinion Pure opinion. Could be wrong. Might get to heaven and Jesus might be like, yeah, no, I was just doodling. I don't know, okay? All right? Could be, okay? But <laughs> that'd be cool, too. I like that. But I think the first time he leaned over after the accusation was coming and they continued to ask the questions, I believe, perhaps, have I made that clear yet to my opinion? <laughs> he wrote the names of the chief accusers. And then he stood up and he looked him in the eye and said, the one who is without sin should be the first one to throw a stone at her. And as he stooped down again, he wrote the names of the women that those chief accusers had already had adulterous relationships with. I don't know if that's what happened. But whatever it was that he wrote, when the silent conviction fell on the crowd, it says that one by one, oldest to youngest, her accusers walked away. And so at last, it was Jesus and this woman. You can hear the sweet, gentle, kind voice of Jesus speaking to the ears of a humiliated guilty woman <laughs> when he says, hey, so uh, where did they go? Has nobody condemned you? Yeah, no one. She says back. She says, neither do I. Now go, and don't sin anymore. So 
Folks, we, we need to get in our head. No, that's not true. We need to get in our heart. The truth that we have a God who desires redemption instead of condemnation. We have a God who would rather rescue than punish. We, we have a God who gave his son to take our punishment so we can experience rescue. Without question, the most popular verse in all of Scripture, John 3.16, it's beautiful. For God so loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. But the next verse is just as beautiful. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. We have a God who desires redemption instead of condemnation. Why can't God have a people who desire redemption instead of condemnation? How's your spirit? Do you have that judgy spirit? Or do you recognize the fact that Jesus had every right to tell them to cast stones down upon you? but instead said, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the pictures that you give us in your word to drive home the truth of our salvation, of our rescue. God, I know that there are people here who feel condemned already just from stepping foot into a church. Lord, I wonder if they actually know who you really are. So in our closing time this morning, I pray that you'd do your work in the hearts of men and women. And if they need to know Jesus, that today they would know that Jesus Christ came to seek and to save sinners. And that even sitting where they are right now, they would cry out from their heart, Jesus, save me that they would trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for their rescue from their condemnation. I pray for the one here this morning who wrestles with forgiveness of sins. I pray that they would understand that in Christ, their sins have been forgiven. May they continue to trust in him anew each and every day. Father, you are faithful and good to us. You fulfill every promise that you have made to us not the least of which is that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. May we be a people who live like we are no longer condemned. In the matchless name of our Savior, I pray. Amen. Would you stand and would you sing with us?